0: John chapter 17, and I could not be more thrilled about this. And I really believe that what's contained in this chapter is exactly what we need as a church. I believe it's exactly what we need, and the reason for that is because contained in this chapter is the entirety of the plan of salvation and what God is doing in human history, and that's exactly what we need. That's what our church needs, is to see the big 30,000-foot level of God's sovereign eternal plan and where this whole thing called history is going. So this is where we'll be for the next three weeks, so let me do this, let me pray one more time. I very much need it, I'm sure you need it too, and then we'll dive in. Oh Christ, you are the sovereign king, the emperor over the entire universe, all things belong to you. And Lord, we are just people, we are just mere branches. Oh, Lord, we have nothing to contribute to you except weakness. We have nothing to contribute to you except bankruptcy. All we are, O oh, Lord, are created, finite, temporal people who desperately need grace. And we need grace here this morning, Lord, as we hear your word proclaimed. Lord, I preach, but it must be you who preaches in me. I will preach, O Lord, but it is your grace that empowers me to do so. I preach, O Lord, and I preach as a dying man to dying men. Use your word and do the things that we cannot do on our own. And we praise the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I'm sure that you've heard the myths about John's gospel sure you've heard that it's simple and easy, that it's the training wheels of the Bible, the shallow end of the pool, that the gospel of John is something that you give to new Christians and you do that because it's simple and basic and, and accessible, it's easy to understand, and to be sure there is some truth to that, but that's not the whole truth. See, the truth is, the gospel of John is both simple and incomprehensible all at the same time. It is the ABCs of the Bible and the quantum mechanics of the Bible all at once. You see, a beginner who's never read the Bible can jump into the Gospel of John and take introductory lessons to the Christian life, but even the most brilliant of theologians will die on their deathbed with a sense of holy frustration that they have never yet touched the bottom of this book. Children can jump in and play, scholars can dive in and drown in the depths. That is John chapter 17. And speaking of diving in and drowning, that's exactly what John chapter 17 is. You have to understand, this is the deep end of the Bible, or the towering heights of the Bible, depending on how you look at it. And to be sure, there are other deep ends in the Bible also. There's Exodus 34, and Isaiah 40, and Ezekiel 36, and Romans 9, and all of the book of Hebrews, and Revelation 21, each of them thousands and thousands of miles beneath the surface of man's feeble comprehension, but also included in the deep end of the pool, is none other than John chapter 17. And the reason for that is because contained in this chapter are some of the deepest secrets of life and reality and eternity. Inside this chapter are truths so earth-shatteringly significant that they are almost radioactive. <laughs> and by that I mean that we discover in John, John chapter 17 that all of human history is just one giant collaboration by the persons of the Trinity to get people saved. That particular souls had been singled out and selected by the father before time for salvation and then given to the son for whom he would die and purchase with his blood. That's it. That's John 17. No big deal. Oh, except for the fact that all of that means everything. You see, John 17, you understand, it is thermonuclear. It is radioactive, it's holy radiation, meaning that once you're exposed to it, you will never be the same again. You don't don't read this chapter and come back the same. You don't read this chapter and then go on about your day as if nothing had happened. No, what is seen cannot be unseen. And once you see it, it changes you and the way you view the entire universe. Why? Well, not just because it's a Trinitarian prayer of Christ to the Father, but because what he prays, what he prays reminds us. It reminds us that to be a Christian is to be a part of something infinitely bigger than ourselves. It reminds us that our salvation has Trinitarian roots stretching back in time to before the world began. That is John 17. And I'm persuaded that if you really have ears to hear, that if you're ready to embrace and submit to what this chapter has to say, that your lives will never be the same again. This church will never be the same Again, I mean, even if this chapter doesn't say one word about your particular struggles directly, it nevertheless will provide the theological infrastructure that you need to handle everything in your lives. Let's put it this way. John 17 is not about you and your problems, significant though those problems may be. Rather, it is about what the triune God is doing in human history, and yet that right there is exactly what you need for everything in your life. So let's go to the deep end of the pool, shall we? The deep end of the ocean known as John 17, where we find there the radioactive prayer of the Son of God. And here's where we're going. You may or may not have notes in front of you, but here's where we're headed. This morning, I want you to see from Christ's prayer. And believe it or not, we're only going to look at verses 1 through 5 this morning. But from those verses, I want you to see five foundational realities five foundational realities that magnify christ make sense of the world and motivate you for the mission that's where we're headed five foundational realities that magnify christ make sense out of the world and motivate you for the mission and so ready or not here we go foundational reality number one the glory of the trinity is the meaning of everything <laughs> the glory of the Trinity is the meaning of everything Now, maybe it's been a while since you've been in John 17 and you're a little rusty on what transpires before this moment and so let me let me remind you John opens the gospel chapter 1 of course with the eternality and deity of Jesus Christ calling him the word Chapter 2, the wedding at Cana when Christ changes water into wine. I mean, he changes the molecular structure of water into wine from across the room. Chapter 3, the nighttime conversation with Nicodemus when he shatters everything Nicodemus had ever believed about how to obtain salvation. Chapter 4, the thrilling conversation with the Samaritan woman and the Samaritan revival. Chapter 5, Christ heals a man in Jerusalem who had been crippled for 38 years on the Sabbath, no less, and it erupts in this hostile conversation between he and the religious leaders. Chapter 6, up north in Capernaum, the feeding of the 5,000, followed by this hostile conversation between he and a group of angry Jews in a synagogue. Chapter 7, the Feast of Tabernacles, another hostile confrontation, which bleeds into chapter 8 when Christ declares himself the light of the world, and he calls himself Yahweh, and they pick up stones to crush his skull. Chapter 9, he heals a man blind from birth, which of course uh, uh, provokes a a hostile conversation between he and the religious leaders, which flows into chapter 10 when he declares himself the good shepherd. Chapter 11, he shows up to a, a funeral, weeps over the poor sap in the tomb, and then raises him from the dead. Chapter 12. He rides on a donkey into Jerusalem, declaring himself the Messiah. Then chapters 13 through 16, the disciples sitting together in a rented Airbnb in downtown Jerusalem where Christ delivers the most theologically profound after-dinner speech in history, which brings us to chapter 17. And about 15, 20 minutes from this moment, maybe, Christ will be in handcuffs being questioned by the authorities and about 6 to 8 hours from now after a sleepless night and hours of torture he will be crucified for the sins of the world. And on the brink of all those things what does he do? What does he do? He prays. He prays. And in verses 1 through 5 he prays for himself. In verses six through 19, he prays for the disciples and their daring mission to go behind enemy lines and reach the nations with the gospel. And in verses 20 through 26, get a load of this. In verses 20 through 26, he prays for you. He prays for you. For you and every person throughout history whom the Father had chosen to believe, which tells us, even though chapter 17 is only 26 verses long, crammed into those 26 verses is all of eternity and the plan of salvation. And there they are, Christ and the disciples, sitting around this table in a rented upstairs room in downtown Jerusalem, their stomachs are full, their plates are empty, their hearts are heavy, and then all of a sudden Christ begins to pray. Look at the text in, verse, in chapter 17. These things Jesus said, and after lifting up his eyes into heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Stop there. Notice that John said that Jesus said these things. You know what the these things are? The these things are everything he just said in chapters 13 through 16. And what he just said in those chapters was not tidbits of practical wisdom for the journey of life, but rather it was like putting the most powerful weapon in history into their hands and sending them onto the battlefield. That's what he just did. And here he begins to pray. And there are three things I want you to notice about this prayer in verse one, about what he prays in verse one. There are three things I want you to notice. First, the recipient of the prayer. Second, the occasion for the prayer. And third, the content of the prayer. So notice first the recipient of the prayer. Verse one, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now, did you hear it? Christ prayed to the Father. And to be sure, God is your Father also, but you see, he's the Father of Christ in a different way, in a Trinitarian way. You see, we are created. Christ is the creator. We are temporal. Christ is eternal. We are unclean. He is the Holy One. My point is, there is a theology crammed into that word, Father, a Trinitarian theology. God the Son speaks to God the Father with whom he created the universe and with whom he rules the universe. That's what this is. I mean, if you think it's a big deal, when major world political powers gather together in a summit, that ain't nothing compared to this meeting right here. Jesus in God, Father and Son, one person of the Trinity meeting with another person of the Trinity in the fellowship of prayer. But notice, second, the occasion for the prayer. The occasion for the prayer, verse one again. He says, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. And that sounds cool, doesn't it? And it is cool. You know why? Because all throughout John's gospel, we see this phrase again and again and again. My hour has not yet come. His hour had not yet come. The hour has not yet come. But here, but here, the hour has come. It's here, Father, it's arrived. The hour we've both been waiting for from before the foundation of the world is here, Father. And yet what we have to know is the hour for what? What is this mysterious hour about which he speaks? Well, I'll I'll tell you what it is. It's not 60 minutes on a clock. Rather, it is the sovereignly appointed time of his greatest achievements. The hour, you understand, was his 15 minutes of fame, the meaning of his mission, the purpose of the plan, the very reason why he showed up to the planet in the first place, and why did he show up? You know why. You know exactly why. His hour was to be crucified for sinners and then conquer the grave three days later. That was his hour. That's the occasion for the prayer, which is no small thing because his sin-bearing death and his grave defying resurrection was the secret to the entire plan of salvation. This was the entire key to the entire operation. So if you are saved here this morning, and I hope you all are, it is because this hour arrived, which brings us then to the content of the prayer. The content of the prayer, and it's nothing short of radioactive, look at the thing for which Christ asks in verse 1. It says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And there it is. The most radioactive thing for which Christ could have asked. The first thing on the list for which he asks is his own glory. And just think, just just think about what Christ has done here for a minute. By Old Testament standards, what Christ has just done is unthinkable. This is ridiculous. To 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 ask God to bring you glory. There's a name for that in the Bible. It's called blasphemy. That is, unless of course Jesus is God, which of course is Isaiah 42 8 God emphatically says he says I am Yahweh that is my name and my glory I will not give to another Isaiah 48 11, for my own sake for my own sake I will act for how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another so do you follow the logic If the father will give his glory to no one, but he will give it to his son, what then does that say about the son? He has to be God, he has to be God. And so what Christ is asking the father to do is that everything that he's about to do, namely his death and resurrection, that all of that, that all of that would put him on display for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. That he displays his infinite worth most distinctly by dying in the place of the very people who deserved to die. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting that the supreme beauty of the sun is most clearly seen in his sin-bearing sacrifice in the place of hell-deserving sinners? See, the kings and the tyrants of the world, they get their glory by dominating their people, but the God of the Bible gets his glory by dying for his people. And did you notice in the text, the trinitarian loop, feedback loop of glory. Christ says glorify your son. Why? For what purpose? To what end? That the son should glorify you. Do you see this here? The glory of Christ is a trinitarian glory. Christ, listen very carefully, Christ does not want to be glorified except from and by the Father. And the Father does not want to be glorified except in and through the Son. Or to put it this way, Christ would be glorified by pulling off the greatest rescue mission in history and the Father would be glorified by planning the greatest rescue mission in history. And so, the implication is very simply this, the glory of the Trinity means absolutely everything. It means absolutely everything. And you might be thinking, okay, well, is that, is that practical for me? Is that useful for me? Is there anything I can do with that? To which I reply, well, it's immediate practicality for your lives. I'm not persuaded is the first question you should ask, but yes, as a matter of fact, it is practical. You know why? Because seeing the glory of God, or seeing God as an incomparable treasure to which everything else is worthless in comparison, is the very thing you were made for. Just as I said when I preached on Jonathan Edwards, in the Bible, there's no such thing as, well, golly, you can live for God's glory, or you can live for your pleasure, but you can't have both no no the way to live for your highest pleasure is to live for the glory of god the more god is glorified the more you are satisfied god's passion for his glory is his passion for your joy because his passion for your joy is his passion for your joy in him and the more you are satisfied in him the more he is glorified in you make no mistake here this morning the happiest You have ever been and the happiest you will ever be is in those moments those seasons those times when you are most sold out for God you are never more happy than when you are seeking to enjoy and to display the worth and value of God and so the question is this morning are you happy are you a happy Christian this morning Because if not, it could be, it could be that you have drifted from the essence of what it means to be a Christian and you are no longer pursuing God as the treasure of your soul. Which brings us to foundational reality number two. Foundational reality number two, all of history is the unfolding of a plan. All of history is the unfolding of a plan. Now, You know this, but as people, we love secrets, don't we? Celebrity gossip, loving having the the latest news, the inside scoop. We love secrets, both telling them and hearing them, and the juicier the better. Well, this morning I get the distinguished privilege of telling you the juiciest of secrets, and you get the distinct pleasure of hearing that secret. You ready? Here it is. All of human history is just one giant collaboration by the persons of the Trinity to get people saved. That particular souls had been singled out and selected by the Father for salvation before time and then given to his son for whom he would die and purchase With his blood, that's the secret. That's the secret. And that's pretty juicy, isn't it? (laughs) That all of human history is just one giant Trinitarian fix. That's the secret. And where I get that from is in verses like John 17, verse 2. So look at the text. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. The hour has come, Father. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you Here it is, because you gave to him authority over all flesh in order that everyone whom you have given to him, he shall give to them eternal life. Now, do you see the connection between verses 1 and 2? Do you see the connection? Verse 2, you understand, is the reason. Verse 2 is the explanation for why the Father and Son will be glorified. Put it this way, verse 2 is the riveting backstory in the ancient context that explains why the Son would be glorified by the Father and why the Father would be glorified by the Son and why will they be glorified? Because as it turns out, all of human history is the unfolding of a plan, a master plan hatched by the Trinity before the foundation of the world. And you can see that plan unfold in condensed form in verse two. And that plan unfolds in three separate gifts. Three gifts. Gift number one, look at the text. Father, you gave me, authority over all flesh. That's gift number one. Meaning what exactly? And not just what, but but when, when did the father give Christ authority over all flesh? And what does that even mean? Well, when it happened, was in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, and what it means is that the Father imparted to his Son, get this now, absolute, undisputed dominion over every person in history. That's what all flesh means. He's talking about people here. And so make no mistake, Jesus Christ has absolute, sovereign authority over the entirety of of the human race who they are what they do how long they live and where they spend eternity and this is everywhere in the bible you need to know this this is everywhere in the bible john 3:35 the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand christ said in john 10:29 the father has given to me all things john 13:3 the father gave all things into his hand Matthew 11:27, 27, all things were given to me by my Father. And of course, Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth was given to me. And so the point is, every square inch of the universe was given by the Father to the Son before time. And if it exists, it is in the jurisdiction of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything belongs to him. That's gift number one. Gift number two, look at the text. Father, you gave to me, the Son, authority over all flesh. Here it is. In order that everyone whom you have given to him, he shall give to them eternal life. Now, warning, this is really, really tricky, but so profound. Do you see the second gift? Do you see it there in the text? Not only did the father give the son authority over humanity as a whole, gift number one, but gift number two, get this now, he also gave to the son a specific subset of humanity in particular. Do do you see that in the text? Everyone whom you have given to me, father, I shall give to them eternal life. So what we have here in the text is we have all flesh over here on one side, and then we have those in particular that the Father gave to the Son on the other. So I believe the text is clear and unmistakable. Jesus Christ has absolute sovereign authority over all humanity as a whole, no question, but only some of those people over whom Christ as authority in particular have been given by the father to the son for whom he would die and purchase with his blood. And to these and these alone, the son gives eternal life, which is gift number three. Do you see that eternal life is the third gift? And so can you see what Christ is unfolding here? It's jarring to say the least. It's shocking to say the least. But he's talking about a select number of souls in particular given to him by the father before time and these and these alone are the recipients of salvation these alone get saved and if you are saved here this morning he's talking about you you are in the bible you are the gift exchange between the father and son before time began and this is all throughout John 17 I'm going, to li- I'm going to read a little bit from John 17, other parts of the chapter. And I want you to listen. To l- I want you to listen to how he prays to the Father. I want you to listen about whom he prays to the Father. Listen very carefully. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Because you gave to him authority over all flesh in order that everyone whom you have given to him, pay attention to the word give, everyone whom you have given to him, he shall give to them eternal life. Verse six, I manifested your name to the people you gave to me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me, because they are yours. And all the things which are mine are yours, and the things which are yours are mine, and I have been glorified by them. And I'm not praying for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Father, those whom you have given to me, I desire that where I am, they would be with me in order that they would see my glory, which you have given to me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. <laughs> but do you hear that? There are some that the Father has given to the Son before time and only those given to the Son by the Father receive eternal life. Christ didn't pray for the whole world but only for those given to him by the Father and only those given to him by the Father will be with him for all eternity and see his glory. Those things don't happen to everybody without exception. They only happen to those given by the Father to the Son. I mean, don't you see the deepest explanation for why you or anyone else gets saved is owing ultimately to the fact that they were given handpicked by the Father before time and given to the Son. And the name for those handpicked by the Father, the name for this Trinitarian gift exchange before time is what the Bible calls election. It's called predestination. In other words, all election means is that your infinite joy in Jesus Christ was predestined for you before the ages began. And personally, I find it very interesting, if not Refreshing, don't you? That with all the controversy that surrounds this doctrine, that Christ would speak about it in terms of a love gift exchange between the Father and Son before the galaxies were made. Isn't that interesting to you? That that all of human history is simply the, the outworking of a plan, the unfolding of a collaboration by the persons of the Trinity to get people saved. And you might be thinking, okay, well, is that... Practical is that helpful for me? Can I, can I do anything with this? Is this useful to me? To which I reply, devastatingly so. There's two implications of this doctrine. Number one, all of the love and sense of belonging for which you hunger in this life can only ultimately be found in the fact that the father loved you before time and gave you to the son for whom he would die and purchase with his blood see if you belong to jesus christ this morning hear this you are the gift inglorious and sinful though you may be, you were the gift exchange between the Father and Son before time began. If you are saved here this morning, though you did not deserve it, that means that you were part of an eternal conversation that happened between the persons of the Trinity to get you saved. And that conversation happened before anyone was born. Implication number two. Some of those, some of those whom the father has chosen and given to his son are here in this room as we speak and they have salvation. Others of those whom the father has chosen and given to his son, they are out there somewhere, everywhere and they do not yet have salvation, and yet they will have salvation, hear this very carefully, through and only through the proclamation of the gospel. You see, contrary to what so many people think, election election does not make our evangelism meaningless. Election, rather, guarantees that our evangelism cannot fail. You see, God has his elect in every tribe and tongue and nation and people and workplace and college campus and even in your own families. And all we've got to do is go out there and find them by indiscriminately proclaiming the gospel to everyone. So that's two. Two foundational realities that magnify Christ, make sense out of the world, and, and motivate you for the mission, which brings me to foundational reality number three. These will go faster. Number three, eternal life is pleasure in a person. Eternal life is pleasure in a person. And eternal life is exactly what Christ talked about at the end of verse two, isn't it? Look what he said. Father, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Why? Because you gave to him authority over all flesh in order that everyone whom you have given to him, he shall give to them eternal life. And yet that's the million dollar question, isn't it? What exactly is eternal life? What is it? What does it mean, and why is it worth giving everything up for? And people have their theories, do they not, about what eternal life is, and most of those theories are far from appetizing. A quiet state of contemplation, shh, we're in heaven, keep it down over there. An endless worship service where we sing forever, pass. Clouds and harps and angels and togas, I mean, is is that the best we can do? Thankfully. None of that is the complete picture of what eternal life will be like. Rather, in Christ's urgent last-minute prayer before he's arrested, he articulates what it is that makes our salvation ultimately compelling. And what makes it compelling is that what it is, in its essence, is pleasure in a person. Look at verse 3. Now this is literally the eternal life that they, those whom the Father chose, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And there it is. That's eternal life, straight from the Savior's mouth. The one who gives eternal life gets to define what it is. And what eternal life is, is knowing Jesus Christ and knowing the Father who sent him. That is eternal life. And yet... We've got to figure this out, don't we? Because, because eternal life, meaning what? Meaning what? what? What does he mean by life here? Because depending on what life is will determine if it's eternally worth having or not. In other words, depending on what life is will tell us whether having it for all eternity is a good thing or not so good. And yet don't miss the implication in the text. Because if we need life, if we all need life, which is exactly what Christ is saying, then that implies that all people are born without it. I mean, they live, yes, to be sure, but they don't live without in the ultimate sense for which they were created. Something is missing, something is lost, something is broken, something is catastrophically wrong here because of the curse and cancer and virus of sin. We were born but shadows of what we were designed to be and what were we designed to be. People in paradise on the planet who prize God for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. That's what you were made for. That's what you were made for. And you know, you know that the paradise and pleasure for which we were made was lost by our first parents in the garden. So that means whatever Christ means by life here is the restoration and the reinstallation of what God originally created us to be. And you put this together with eternal and it becomes very clear that eternal life is not merely living a really long time or merely avoiding death, but rather it is life how we were created to live, namely to have God as the all-satisfying treasure of the soul. That is eternal life, or as Christ puts it, eternal life is knowing He and the Father. And, and you know that, that as people, we love to name drop don't we? We're just, we're just born name droppers. We, we love to brag about the famous people that we've met, about the famous quasi-celebrities that we, that we know, the people who have some sort of influence in life. Well, guess what, guess what? If you have eternal life, you are the most well-connected person in the universe. You've got connections. <laughs> You have the deepest connections. Do you know why? Because if you have eternal life, you know the Trinity because eternal life is knowing the Trinity. Salvation is knowing and prizing and trusting the true God as the treasure of the soul. That is life, how you were created to live, which explains why the world is so miserable, doesn't it? Because the Bible is clear anything else to which you look other than God for ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction, and you will be bitterly disappointed. Everything that God is, is exactly what you were created to enjoy forever. In other words, we were designed by God with longings that only he could fulfill, or as C.S. Lewis puts it, if we find in ourselves a desire that nothing on this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Or more precisely, we were made to find pleasure in a person. And which person exactly? Well, look at the end of verse three. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I mean, do you feel this here? I mean, we, just, we read verses like this so often, we don't even think about it. We're just numb to this. Do you feel the profound exclusivity in the text? Eternal life is not just knowing any God as if there were others that existed. Eternal life is not just knowing God or even knowing the true God, but eternal life is knowing, feel how narrow this is, the only true God. Which means this is not up for discussion. Not all roads lead to heaven. There's not another option on the table for eternal life. There is the only true God. And then there's everything else out there that leads to destruction But of course the question then becomes, Right? how do we know that we have the true God? How do we know? Well, we know the true God from false gods because only the true God is the God who sent Jesus Christ to the planet to pull off the greatest rescue mission in history. Allah did not send Christ to die for sinners and give them eternal life. Buddha did not send Christ and has nothing to do with Christ. The Christ sent by the Mormon Heavenly Father and the Christ sent by Jehovah of the Jehovah's Witnesses is not the eternal God who paid for sins by the sacrifice of himself. If the God of any religion didn't send Jesus Christ to be a ransom for sinners and save them by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, bottom line, it is not the true God. And so here, here's the application. Here's what you do with this. The very fact, don't miss this now, the very fact that eternal life is defined as knowing God explains why it is exactly that God gave you a mind. Why he gave you a mind and why he did was ultimately, ultimately to discover and behold who he is. And how you discover and behold who God is is through the book that you're holding in your hands. And it's not just some book but it's a kind of window a portal into the presence of the one who satisfies the soul and so the application is this listen very closely careful slow rigorous thinking about the text of scripture called meditation in the bible is god's way of awakening and increasing glad-hearted pleasure in him above all things, and glad-hearted pleasure in God is the essence of what eternal life is. I've said it before to the college group in Spokane, and now I'm gonna say it here to you. If you want your highest pleasure in life, and I know you do, then what you must do is ransack the word of God in long, long meditation upon who God is. Because eternal life is pleasure in a person and that is what you were made for. Which brings us to the fourth foundational reality. We're almost home. Foundational reality number four. All that Christ did is all that you need. All that Christ did is all that you need. Look at verse four. He says, Father, I glorified you on the earth. How, why? because I completed the work which you have given me to do. Now, do you see how verse four fits? Do you see how it connects to everything else in the text? In verse one, Christ asks for his glory, does he not? In verse two, we see that he will be glorified because he gives eternal life. In verse three, he defines what eternal life is. And then in verse four, he explains how it is that eternal life is even possible and how is it possible why is it possible what did he say what did Christ just say I glorified you on the earth here it is by completing the work which you have given me to do and there it is that's how bankrupt sinners can ever have hope of salvation that that's it not because they prove themselves worthy, not because their good works outweigh their bad as if that were even possible, but because Jesus Christ completed the work that the Father gave him to do. There's nothing left to be done. There's nothing left to contribute. Everything Christ did was perfectly sufficient to save ruined sinners from eternal woe and despair and not just to save them, but listen very carefully, also to sanctify them. So you have to understand, getting salvation, it's not like applying for a loan. Your lives are not collateral by which you obtain eternal life. As in, well, you can have it if you can demonstrate that you're good for it. I mean, you can have it if you can pay it back. If you can prove that you're worthy, if you can prove that you deserve it, well, then by all means, you can have it. No, no. Salvation is yours by faith by faith, free of charge, no strings attached, because and only because Jesus Christ took care of every single detail to make it free and available to penniless sinners who need it so badly. And yet, what is the work that Christ completed? What did he he do to make salvation available to bankrupt sinners like you and me? And maybe the question is, what didn't he do? (laughs) Because what you must never forget, Christ community, is that Jesus Christ is not the founder of a religion, but the infinite God himself who came to earth as a literal historical human being. And he didn't just live, but he lived sinlessly and perfectly, never once yielding to sin's temptation. And he didn't just live, he died. And the death that he died was for others in their place. He took all the wrath for all the sins of everyone whom the father had chosen on himself. And he died in their place. And in so doing, purchased and paid for their salvation in full. And he didn't just die but he willingly crawled into the belly of death itself and blew it up from the inside. He manhandled death and gave the grave a beat down, and in so doing proved that he himself is the deepest remedy to every dilemma of life. See, what you need to understand is that everything you could possibly need or want or desire or ask for is all centrally located in one person, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. See, you, you pay me here now as your pastor to tell you the obvious. And my job as a pastor is to labor as hard as I possibly can to help you see that there is not one affliction or dilemma of the soul for which Christ is not absolutely sufficient. There is hope for you today. That for every temptation, every bout of depression, every disappointment, every doubt, every fear, every anxiety, every battle with loneliness, every time you are hurt or violated or do something stupid, Jesus Christ has come and he himself is enough for you. Which brings us quickly to the fifth and final foundational reality. Number five, eternity will consist in the enjoyment of Trinitarian glory forever. (laughs) Which is kind of a mouthful. But eternity will consist in the enjoyment of Trinitarian glory forever. Again, that's a mouthful, but trust me when I say that verse five is more relevant to you than you could possibly imagine. Because ask the question, hang with me here. What was the Trinity doing in eternity past, before the universe was made? Isn't that an interesting question? You ever thought about that before? What what kind of activity was God the Father and God the Son engaged in before time, before the universe was made? What, What were they doing? Answer, the very same Activity that they will be engaged in forever in the future when we show up to join them and to worship them. And what were they doing in eternity past? What will they be doing in eternity future? Answer, it will be the full unhindered enjoyment of one another's glory forever and ever and ever. And that's exactly what Christ asks for in verse five. Look at the text. And now, Father... Glorify me with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world began. I mean, do, do you hear what Christ just prayed? He just gave you a, a microscopic glimpse into the life of the Trinity before the universe began. Father, glorify me with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world began. Notice, glorify me, Father. In other words, let everything that I have done and everything that I am about to do have its intended effect and design. Namely, let all of that put me on display for the supremely valuable treasure that I am. Because that was always the plan, you know. Did you know that, that the glory of Christ from before the foundation of the world, Him being put on display, that was always the plan for human history? It's always the plan. I mean, imagine if you can a conversation between Father and Son before creation. Father looks at the Son and He says, My Son, I love you. And I want everyone to see and enjoy what I see and enjoy. I want everyone to feel about you the same way I feel about you. I want everyone to see your transcendent beauty and glory, which I have enjoyed forever. And so the gift that I give to you and to the world, which we are about to create, is that they would see you as a treasure of inexhaustible value. And so, my son, just as we've discussed for all eternity, I'm making you the centerpiece of our plan. I'm making you the face of the company, the the star of the show, and everything you accomplish will achieve the goal of helping everybody see what I have always seen, namely that you are glorious and magnificent. And notice how Christ describes the glory, and here we get closer to the deepest end of the Bible. Look at the text. Glorify me, Father, with yourself, with the glory, here it is, that I had with you before the world began. I mean, do you see? Do you see what the Trinity was doing for all eternity before the universe existed? Do, do you see it? Christ just told us. He just prayed it. What they were doing the infinite ages and centuries and millenniums before creation is that they were mutually exhilarated with one another's glory forever. And and you have to understand that salvation is ultimately joining the Trinity in that mutual exhilaration of one person of the Trinity. With another. You have to understand salvation. Salvation is not some commodity that you get as a reward for believing in Christ. Salvation is not some sort of party favor that you get to enjoy apart from or separate from God. No, eternal life. Salvation is ultimately you being allowed to share in the life of the Trinity. Eternal life is you being allowed to enjoy the persons of the Trinity, enjoying one another forever. And for all eternity, you and I will be caught in the crossfire of their infinite love and joy. Forever, that is eternal life. Which raises the question, and I basically close with this. What does that mean for you right now? Because there's glory in the past, there's glory in the future, but heck, what about right now? I need something right now. Well, I've got something for you. At light speed, eight ways to live for the Trinity right now. This will go really fast They're already on your notes. Here they are, number one. You bring glory to the Trinity, Christ community. When you are supremely satisfied in God over the suicidal pleasures of sin. Number two. You glorify the triune God when you treasure the truth of his word over and above your subjective feelings and, and experiences and opinions and cultural values. Number three, you display the triune God as a treasure when you trust Christ to be all that you need in a world filled with endless pleasures and counterfeit treasures. Number four, you glorify the Trinity when you make all that he, all that Christ is and accomplished, that which defines you, which pushes uh, over against an American culture, which pushes self-made independence and, and accomplishment as the highest of virtues. In other words, when you are more excited about the Great Commission than the American dream, then your life puts God on display. Number five, you glorify God when you make conscious choices with your finances to invest in things of eternal value, rather than the acquisition of Im- the, the the impulsive acquisition of frivolous things that you don't actually need. In other words, when you love the Savior more than stuff, then your life puts God on display. Number six. You glorify the Triune God when you are willing to be hated and lose relationships for the sake of the gospel. Number seven, the Trinity is glorified when you consciously form priorities as a family that demonstrate that the Great Commission is the most important reality in the universe. And last but not least, the triune God is glorified. Parents, parents, when you raise your kids to prize Christ as their treasure and to be defined by all that he accomplished rather than making life all about them and their personal ambitions. And there are more ways to glorify God, lots and lots of ways, but let's put it this way. Living for the glory of God is radically and violently countercultural. And living like that may not be safe for you, it's, it's going to cost you. You might lose friends. You might lose a job. You might even lose family members. But what I can guarantee is that living for the glory of God is the only life that's really actually worth living. That's what John 17 is about, at least a part of what it's about. And the longer the chapter goes, the deeper it becomes. And I can't wait. Let's pray. Oh, Christ, our minds are wearied with the kinds of things that we see. This is, this is beyond us. This is, this is bigger than us. We, we are unable to understand these things on our own, Lord. And so what I'm asking for is that you would seal this text in the souls of your people today that it would change them, that it would warp the way they look at the universe, that it would shatter the the current lenses with which they view the world, that it would break those lenses and help them see that all of human history is the captivating collaboration by you, the triune God, to pull off your plan of which we are a part, a small part, but a part nevertheless. Lord, you love your church. You love this church. And I pray for these people. They are Some of them discouraged. Some of them are distracted in life. Some of them have not yet quite put the pieces together of what the Christian life is all about and and they just want to live a life of of significance and I pray that you would bless them and help them put the pieces of the Bible together. Encourage them, strengthen them, help them to not think untrue thoughts, help them to not not, uh, become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I pray that you would Make them be very cautious about things that could hurt this church and that they would humbly and vulnerably pursue you, Christ, as their highest treasure. And it's in your matchless name that we pray. Amen. A couple things before I have you stand for a benediction. Uh, You can pray for me this week. Uh, In a couple hours, I get on a plane and I go to Los Angeles for school. I'll be there all week. I'll be in class, but also working on stuff for here. So if you need to get a hold of me, I'll be available text or, uh, or email, but you can be praying for that, that. Those are always a sweet but exhausting time. So that means also pray for next Sunday, because on Sundays when I get back, I feel frazzled and, and need God's help. So be, be praying for that. And just so you know, the reason why I'm getting my doctorate uh, is for you. It, it's for the church, uh, for the church universal. I'm, I'm, I exist on this planet to equip the church, and that's why I'm getting that degree And then uh, uh, number two, I just want you to know that uh, I have begun to pray for each of you by name. I have a list of you and I I pray for you and I'm thankful for you as a flock and you are precious to me and and I'm anxious to get to some of you. I see you every Sunday. I'm like, oh, I did get to say hi to that person and I've been here two weeks. So I see you, I know you're there and I really wanna get to know you more and so my apologies for not being able to do that. But there will be time. So if you're able, let's stand for a benediction. The benediction comes from 2 Corinthians 13, verse 12. Fittingly, a Trinitarian benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. We'll see you next week.